Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I am Masood Raja, and I am here today to offer yet another installment in my reading and discussion of Edward Said's Orientalism. Now, if you recall my last lecture, uh, we are still discussing Chapter 1, and Said has given us a critical analysis of statements made by and things written by Alfred Balfour and Cromer, two prominent Orientalists, but also two prominent political figures from, from England. And he now goes on to discuss as to what underwrites their statements, right? So today, the pages that we'll be discussing, he will start with unpacking Cromer and Balfour's assumptions about the Orient and then start giving us an argument about the discursive nature of Orientalism itself. How is it pr produced? What kind of vocabularies does it create and enable in the European cultures and politics? These are some of the things that we'll be discussing and we'll only be covering from middle of the page 40 to the top of page 43. So I'm sorry about the slow pace of this, but we have set ourselves on this arduous task of reading one of the most significant 20th century books and discussing it, and there is no short way of doing it. Now, I do strongly request and urge you to please watch the whole series from the beginning until this point so that you can read along and discuss the book with us through the comment section. So here we go. I'm going to share first part of the reading from middle of page 40 and then come back and talk about it. Many terms were used to express the relation. Balfour and Cromer typically use several. The Oriental is irrational, depraved, fallen, childlike, different. Thus the European is rational, virtuous, mature, normal. But the way of enlivening the relationship was everywhere to stress the fact that the Oriental lived in a different but thoroughly organized world of his own, a world with its own national, cultural, and epistemological boundaries and principles of internal coherence. Yet what gave the Oriental's world its intelligibility and identity was not the result of his own efforts, but rather the whole complex series of knowledgeable manipulations by which the Orient was identified by the West. Thus the two features of cultural relationship I've been discussing come together. Knowledge of the Orient, because generated out of strength, in a sense creates the Orient, the Oriental and his world. In Cromer's and Balfour's language, the Oriental is depicted as something one judges as in a court of law, something one studies and depicts as in a curriculum, something one disciplines as in a school or prison, something one illustrates as in a zoological manual. The point is that the, in each of these cases, the Oriental is contained and represented by dominating frameworks. Where do these come from? So it is obvious from this reading that we cannot really do justice to it without knowing Foucault's theory of discourse. 
right? So the two things that uh, Saeed mentions are coming together in these designations are knowledge and power, right? And then the binary structure of the discourse itself in which all the negative attributes somehow find themselves to be residing in the Orient and the Orientalists. So how does Foucault's theory of discourse enable us to understand that is because every discourse must create its object of study. So the Oriental is not only deranged, not only abnormal, Oriental is also a, an object of study for this discourse. That's why Said is mentioning different disciplines, right? Uh, and different designations that include like the role of a specimen, the role of a, uh, someone who's being tried, the role of someone who's being incarcerated, a criminal, right? And all of these are actual practices in politics, but also are actual areas within which Foucault himself did his research, right? And this is the area in which different objects of power are created. Now, one thing that he concedes in this paragraph is that Orientals are not referred to as someone who has no system. No, it is acknowledged in this body of work that the so-called Orientals have a coherent culture, have it their own narratives, their own histories, but what is emphasized is that they become prominent, those narratives in that culture, only when West writes about them, does research about them, and in the process of doing so, then actually creates the Orient itself, right? And towards the end of this paragraph, then Said is kind of trying to explain that here are the vocabularies of the criminal, right, of the deviant, of the abnormal, in which the Orient and the Orientals are constantly posited. And the question that he ends up with is, where do these vocabularies come from? Right? And as we read further, we will learn that it is Orientalism as a coherent discourse that creates these vocabularies. Right? Also, bear in mind that the two things that define cultures or politics that he is referring to are power and knowledge, right? Knowledge he has talked about right now. Now, if you look at the framing of this entire debate, he picks up two prominent Orientalist administrators, gives us their writings and their statements and what they take for granted while speaking about Egypt or about the Orientals. And then he is now tracing the discursive framework that creates a subjectivity like Cromer or Balfour who can spew out these opinions as truths about the Orient. And that is what we are trying to read, right? So let's go and read some more. Cultural strength is not something we can discuss very easily, and one of the purposes of the present work is to illustrate, analyze, and reflect upon Orientalism as an exercise of cultural strength. In other words, it is better not to risk generalizations about so vague and yet so important a notion as cultural strength until a good deal of material has been analyzed first. 
But at the outset, one can say that so far as the West was concerned during the 19th and 20th centuries, an assumption had been made that the Orient and everything in it was, if not patently inferior to, then in need of corrective study by the West. The Orient was viewed as if framed by the classroom, the criminal code, the prison, the illustrated manual. Orientalism then is knowledge of the Orient that places things Oriental in class, code, prison, or manual for scrutiny, study, judgment, discipline, or governing. So as I just talked about, that a discourse is a combination of knowledge and power, besides so many other things. And in this paragraph then, after having explained how the knowledge produces its categories, right, of the, of the deviant, of the specimen, of the criminal, right, all of them need to be managed and controlled. But then the last passage was, where do these tropes come from? But he's now trying to explain that cultural strength is, is, is an important ingredient of this process of knowledge-making and discourse production. And he is hesitant to actually define cultural strength, but he gives us this idea that before even 19th and 20th century Orientalism, certain things were already assumed, became part of the European consciousness, and those were that Orientals could be studied, right, as specimens and categorized. I mean, think of the books that were produced in India. If you look at the Raj production of India, they will categorize people according to their regions and assign them their own attributes. Here are the Patans, here are the Baloch, right? And, and so that is study, maybe ethnographic studies that fixed certain attributes. There could be legalistic studies that fix certain criminal attributes on to the Orientals. And since everything that was known or believed about the Orient was coming from the field of knowledge, Eurocentric and European that was producing that knowledge, this cultural strength had to play a lot of a huge role in it and we'll get to it in the next pages but the idea is for a culture to have power enough to actually go and study and categorize the people and that power that strength of first being there and then articulating these different attributes in different branches of knowledge in law in ethics in religious terms all of these come together to create the Orient, which can be labeled the way Cromer and Balfour and by extension all the other government functionaries and everyone else labeled it. But he will go on to further explain the role of this cultural strength and how Orientalism makes it and normalizes it and what underwrites this cultural strength and what it can do, according to Said, is the project of Orientalism. So let's go and read some more. During the early years of the 20th century, men like Balfour and Cromer could say what they said in the way they said, 
They did, because a still earlier tradition of Orientalism than the 19th century one provided them with the vocabulary, imagery, rhetoric, and figures with which to say it. Yet Orientalism reinforced and was reinforced by the, the certain knowledge that Europe or the West literally commanded the vastly greater part of the Earth's surface. The period of immense advance in the institutions and content of Orientalism coincides exactly with the period of unparalleled European expansion from 1815 to 1914. European direct colonial dom dominion expanded from about 35% of the Earth's surface to about 85% of it. Every continent was affected, none more so than Africa and Asia. The two greatest empires were the British and the French. Allies and partners in some things, in others they were hostile rivals. In the Orient, from the eastern shores of the Mediterranean to Indochina and Malaya, their colonial possessions and imperial spheres of influence were adjacent, frequently overlapped, often were fought over. But it was in the Near Orient, the lands of the Arab Near East, where Islam was supposed to define cultural and racial characteristics, that the British and the French encountered each other in the Orient with the greatest intensity, familiarity, and complexity. For much of the 19th century, as Lord Salisbury put it in 1881, their common view of the Orient was intricately problematic. When you have got a faithful ally who is bent on meddling in a country in which you're deeply interested, you have three courses open to you. You may renounce or monopolize or share. Renouncing would have been to place the French across our road to India. Monopolizing would have been very near the risk of war. So we resolved to share. So in this section, we see Saeed developing his discussion of the cultural strength idea, upon which depends the discursive power of Orientalism, right? being there, having the power to say certain things about a certain culture. And he's suggesting that before 1920th century colonialism, there is a body of knowledge that has already been produced and that has developed certain views of the Orient or non-European people. Those are already there. That's the heritage that 20th century Orientalism, 19th century Orientalism inherits. But it comes to its true force as a discursive mechanism from eight, late, late 1800s, 1835 to, let's say, 1930s. And that is the time of the high empire, right? 85% of the globe is under colonialism, and two leading colonial powers are France and England. And as Saïds points out, they were rivals, they often competed, but they were also partners at different places. They had a strategic relationship. And in the Near East, is where after the initial struggles, let's say in Egypt that we talked about, they reach a sort of a compromise, right? And, and divide their territories of control. But the other part of the compromise also is that they share the knowledge 
of the Near East, of the Arab and the Muslim world, which has its own religion and its own history, but that is studied from a European perspective. We'll see how Napoleon does it in Egypt, right? And we already know how the British study it. But that is the time when Orientalism as a discourse gains its contemporary strength or the strength that would take it to the 21st century and even towards American imperialism. And towards the end of what I just read uh, is the quote from Lord Salisbury, right, who was also the Prime Minister uh, at one time of Britain. And his idea, that while he's writing about the French, that, okay, you know, we were rivals, but we had three paths. We could fight them, we could compromise, or we could, you know, replace them. I don't know what the third option was, but that Britain, Britain agreed to follow a sort of a compromise. And what Said is hinting at is that that wasn't just a political compromise, that compromise also enabled stabilizing and strengthening of the Orientalist discourse in which English writers and authors borrow from the French and French borrow from the British. So it's not just the project of one empire, but it becomes the project of two large empires, both underwritten by and producing objects of study, objects of control in the Orient through a collective discourse called Orientalism. Let's read a little more. And share they did, in ways that we shall investigate presently. What they shared, however, was not only land or profit or rule, it was the kind of intellectual power I have been calling Orientalism. In a sense, Orientalism was a library or archive of information, commonly and in some of its aspects unanimously held. What bound the archive together was a family of ideas and a unifying set of values proven in various ways to be effective. These ideas explained the behavior, behavior of Orientals. They supplied Orientals with a mentality, a genealogy, an atmosphere. Most important, they allowed Europeans to deal with and even to see Orientals as a phenomena possessing regular characteristics. But like any set of durable ideas, or Orientalist notions influenced the people who were called Orientals as well as those called Occidental. European or Western, in short, Orientalism is better grasped as a set of constraints upon and limitations of thought than it is simply as a positive doctrine. If the essence of Orientalism is the ineradicable distinction between Western superiority and Oriental inferiority, then we must be prepared to note how in its development and subsequent history, Orientalism deepened and even hardened the distinction. When, when it became common practice during the 19th century for Britain to retire its administrators from India and elsewhere, once they had reached the age of 55, then a further refinement in Orientalism had been achieved. No Oriental was ever allowed to see a Westerner as he aged and degenerated just as no Westerner needed ever to see himself mirrored in the eyes of the subject race as anything but a vigorous, rational, ever alert young Raj.
So what we learned so far is that not only is Orientalism a large supranational discourse, but also that they borrow from each other, the English from the French, the French from the English. But the purpose of the entire project then is through production of knowledge and its dissemination to create certain ideas of the Oriental, right? Now, the Oriental is given certain coherence and, and certain civilizational structure, but is rendered into a passive region and people who must be controlled, who must be legally controlled, who must be trained, and who must be mastered and can only be understood within the logic of the discourse produced by the West itself, produced by the colonizers themselves. Now, as these ideas develop post-19th century into the full-blooded capital, uh, uh, colonialism at its peak, then along with that are also ideas of how to govern the oriental spaces. And that's why there is that reference to the ever young Raj. Because the idea was that the Europeans presented themselves as superior, thought of themselves as superior, and took upon this natural right to govern the so-called orientals whom they themselves had constructed within their own discourse. And of course, frailty and old age and things like that could not be represented. Now, if any of you are from the post-colonial nation states, you already know if you look at the British colonial system, uh, the British always maintained an aura of separateness, right? All their European um, areas of living and everything else was separated from the town. Right? They would build military cantonments that were segregated from the actual towns. Thus, deputy collectors and commissioners had these huge palatial houses, right, which were impermeable, public couldn't just go in there. The system of governance was such that the bureaucrats held more power than even if the local elections were allowed. These are by and large the structures that we have maintained in India and Pakistan. I mean, look at the, uh, the example of Pakistan, third elected government in a row, but where do people have to go to solve their problems, right? To the DPO's office or so-called deputy commissioner. These are public servants, right? They still live in their beautiful, huge houses, have armies of servants. That structure still hasn't been replaced, and it gives those local public servants the same kind of aura of power. Now, imagine that within the colonial situation, right? You couldn't represent Raj as something that was getting old or weak or frail. It had to be vigorous. It had to be youthful. Now, all of this, what Saeed is saying, is not accidental. This is produced through the discourse of Orientalism, the body of knowledge that is produced, the power to study the subject races. Now, if you look at the labels that he's using of law, right, of the laboratory, right, of the court or the hospital, all of these are fields of study but or a specimen 
But these are also terms that are highly Foucauldian. Okay, so you can clearly trace Foucault's influence. I mean, look at Foucault's book, books, Birth of the Clinic, right? Pun in discipline and punish. So what he's constantly training us to think about is that Orientalism is a discourse. A discourse relies on two things, knowledge and power, right? And if we acknowledge that, then a discourse always also produces its object of study or objects upon which it functions. It must necessarily create them. So since the discourse of Orientalism post-18th century becomes even more widespread because of these two empires who decide to cooperate, right? then the objects that are being created by this discourse are the very Orientals that the discourse creates. And the problem with any discourse is it creates its objects and then takes them to be natural because then the dominant group within a discourse can claim some kind of natural ascendancy even though that has been trained through the minutest policies. That's why the last sentence is the ever young Raj, right? That the presentation, that's why the British officers would dress up to dinner even in a desert, right? To present that aura of superiority through performative acts of identity. So that's what I get from this part that I just read. So let's just read a little more and then uh, hopefully I will conclude today's discussion. Orientalist ideas took a number of different forms during the 19th and 20th centuries. First of all, in Europe there was a vast literature about the Orient inherited from the European past. What is distinctive about the late 18th and early 19th centuries, which is where this study assumes modern Orientalism to have begun, is that an Orientalist Renaissance, Renaissance took place, as Edgar Quinnett phrased it. Suddenly it seemed to a wide variety of thinkers, politicians and artists that a new awareness of the Orient, which extended from China to Mediterranean and had arisen. This awareness was partly the result of newly discovered and translated Oriental texts in languages like Sanskrit, Zend and Arabic. It was also the result of a newly perceived relationship between the Orient and the West. For my purposes here, the keynote of the relationship was set for the Near East and Europe by the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt in 1798, an invasion which was in many ways the very model of a truly scientific appropriation of one culture by another, apparently stronger one. For with Napoleon's occupation of Egypt, processes were set in motion between East and West that still dominate our contemporary cultural and political perspective. And the Napoleonic expedition with its great collective monument of erudition, the description of Egypt, provide a scene or settling for Orientalism. Scene or setting for Orientalism. Since Egypt and subsequently the other Islamic lands were viewed as the life province, the laboratory, the theater of effective Western knowledge about the Orient, I shall return to the Napoleonic adventure 
a little later. So here we are at the end of our reading of this particular selection of chapter one. Now what he's building up on here is that Orientalism in its full form starts post 19th century but it relies on the Orientalist knowledge that was gathered before that, right? It incorporates it as a body of knowledge. But also there is also a reference to recovery of you know, three other Orientalist linguistic treasures. So the Zend, right, the Zoroastrian sacred book is translated around this time. The Arabic texts are translated and so is in linguistics and otherwise this idea of Indo-European languages being connected to Sanskrit. Orientalists are doing this work. And in the process, novels are being written, stories are being written, right? And so Orient, especially the Middle East, figures deeply prominently within the romantic, historical, and other writings of this time. And all of these writings, of course, inform the Orientalist discourse, because remember, for a discourse to be a discourse, it must have power and it must have knowledge, a body of knowledge that tries to articulate, define, control, maintain the Orient, connected with the rise of powerful colonial empires, is what then becomes a larger discourse of Orientalism. And then the, towards the end of this, he is again going to Napoleon. Remember, for Said, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt in 1789 is, is a huge event in theorizing Orientalism. And not simply because it was a military invasion. We briefly talked about it in one of the lectures. But because when Napoleon goes there, he takes an army of scientists and anthropologists and geographers with him. That is one example that Said uses always in saying, in explaining that Orientalism is not just knowledge, but also the power to be there and study a subject area, a subject group, and then produce knowledge about it. So the publications that he is referring to were huge, monumental volumes that were published. They were beautiful and they were put in the libraries in France. They were monuments of this power and knowledge necklace, nexus that you can conquer Egypt, but then you can study, right? And that is Orientalism. Kind of, we could say it's a chronotope because history and space and time come together. And it's, it's an example because it illustrates immediately for the reader that what Said means by a discourse and the nexus of power and knowledge can be seen historically in what Napoleon does in Egypt, not just invading Egypt, but recording it. So that's where we are in this discussion, right? So let me sum up. We started this chapter with Said introducing two British historical figures, Alfred Balfour and Cromer. Balfour, a former Prime Minister of India, making a speech that the British should keep control over Egypt, in which he cites Cromer's work. And Cromer was the British administrator in Egypt. Then he gives us examples and samples of their written texts. 
and points out that there are certain consistent vocabularies that are employed about the Orientals, about Egyptians, in which they're supposed to be passive, they're supposed to be controlled, they're supposed to not know how to govern themselves. And then the question that he's trying to answer is, how is that view of the Orient normalized? And that's where Orientalism as a discourse comes in, right? A body of knowledge, written, articulated, recorded, disseminated, and having the power to study these groups and study them under certain registers, right? As possible criminals, right? As possible uh, people who don't have a history or whose history doesn't change, as subjects of clinical studies, as specimens of different races and their inferiority. And throughout this study, Orient as an object of study is always considered to be passive and inferior, and that idea of European superiority itself is an outcome of Orientalist discourse. So that's all so far in our uh, series on Orientalism. I hope this was useful to you. As always, if you have any questions, please post them in the comments, and I'll try to answer them. Also, I do highly recommend that you should watch this series from the beginning to the present point, and please do read the book along with it, because only then will you be able to benefit properly from this. I will be back soon with the next installment of this reading and discussion. Until then, thank you so much for your time, and as always, peace and love.